When you almost die, at age 22, everything changes. It got me thinking about what I wanted to do before I actually die. Because life is unpredictable. Can you relate? I'm Kiki Kelly, and this is my story. My friend Amy Hallberg thought I should share some of my stories with you. Some are hard, some are funny, and some are just unbelievable. But they're all true. So here we are. Season 4, Episode 1. Tales from an Inadvertent Bucket List Champ. So we are here for the final, fourth and final season. How does that feel for you? Like, I was like, want to do a podcast? And you were like, what? And now we have this podcast. You know, people have listened to it and it's out there. How does it feel? It feels really surreal. Although everyone in their dog and their grandma's dog is doing a podcast now. True. (laughs) It's strange because it's been such a delay with everything that's happened. Who could have anticipated all the things? No, one of the things is my mom passed. So that was that was difficult. Again, another reason to feel like I'm on the other side of Alice's wonderland. Which is what we are calling this season is through, we actually called it that through the looking glass. We called it that even before your mom passed. Through the looking glass. I know. I kind of wish I hadn't named it that, <laughs> right? <laughs> That somehow made things happen. It didn't it didn't make COVID happen. It didn't make my mom die. But it, it kind of speaks to the mood of where we are as you start this season. Because you're coming back from Mexico, your marriage is over, and you're starting a new life with your daughter. Yeah, and I had just had surgery to have a parathyroid tumor removed. So it was just terrible. And it was one of the worst winters. It kind of reminds me this year kind of reminds me of then so almost exactly 10 years ago and I'm wondering sometimes cycles the good thing about growing old is you think this too shall pass I mean this this shall pass that's the only thing that kept me going through some of this is that I've been here before I'm hoping that I don't have to have surgery or something again but well and you know to that point we know how this season ends we know that story we're telling it it happened Things go up from here. Things things are looking up. Yes. Instead of, well, they did they did then too. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Things were looking up. Yeah. At the time, my metaphor was I had jumped off a cliff because it was the end of societal expectations. You know, what do you do when your marriage ends and you're going to be a, at the traditional two-parent family and moving and... Well, and you've given birth. You've had multiple successful careers. You've been the dutiful daughter. You've done all of the things that a woman should do. You almost died, but didn't mercifully, right? Like, what do you do when you've done all the things? I mean, this is the bucket list champ series. And yet you, you had done all the things you thought you wanted to do. Yeah. I think it's important to talk about how especially when it's called bucket list champ, that makes it sound like it's a forever vertical, you know, line. And it's not. There are times when you go back down to the X, Y axis. Right. You start from the, or even below it. You're a parabola below it. My, my daughter <laughs> is doing math right now, like for 
for the ACT practice and everything. So I've got math on the skull. Sometimes it's a really good metaphor, though. I mean, like it is for for a narrative, for a storyline. Like it's not like, and everything was happily ever after the end. Nope. Some good stuff happened, then some bad stuff happened, and then it started to look up again. Yeah, so my condo finally got done, and that was huge because it was um, built from the ground up. I had a 100% say in what it looked like. Yeah, so tell us about this condo because I've never seen this condo. I've only seen pictures, but to hear you tell of it, it is quite magnificent. I had my bedroom was the queen's room and Maddie's was the princess room. <laughs> and it wasn't stereotypical. It didn't look, you know, like a <laughs> queen and a princess. Well, mine kind of did. It really did look kind of like a queen's room. <laughs> With It was just, I... I I didn't think I would ever be married again, which, you know, I still haven't. So I was right about that. And I was like, why would I need another room? We just, it was just two bedrooms and uh, a lovely den that was very cozy. And uh, when you first entered, it was bright red wallpaper that had um, birds flying out of cages. <laughs> That's no more. <metaphor>. for. <laughs> I was like, I'm free, I'm free. I fell off the cliff, I've survived and now I'm gonna fly. So I mm -hmm. decided I better start dating, I guess. You know, it was a year and I was like, oh, my God. Um, so I put up a, put up a, what do you even call it? Profile. It was so awkward. And um, I put curvy down and I found out that that kind of, um, that actually helped me out because anyone who would be shallow was like, oh, Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't even realize that until someone told me. You said you were curvy, and I was like, "Yeah." So, <laughs> I mean, I had no idea what was going on. Yeah. So that's a story in and of itself, and that that got me um, because I was telling the same stories over and over again about a series of bad first dates, um, or or uh -huh. just you know not bad, but but not the uh, one. Def definitely, I wasn't even looking for the one. I was just getting out into the world and seeing what was happening again because Maddie had started kindergarten. Oh, it was so sweet. And I was able to, you know, volunteer, but I had her, we, our schedule was a week on week off at the time it changed later, but I didn't, you know, what, what was I going to do for that week that I didn't have her? I mean, it was just so. Well, I mean, one, one possibility would have been to just drink a lot. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. Be a wine mom. Exactly. No, it's a possibility for sure. And, and I, I bring that up because that was an intentional decision on your part to make something else of yourself. You, you were very conscious about that. Yeah. Well, when you have a, well, not only was she a kindergartner, but in their little art session, they made a, <laughs> they made this rather horrifying print for their moms for Mother's Day that said, little eyes are watching you. <laughs> Kind of creepy. <laughs> but I was, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, this is such a developmental time period for her. And I really have to get it together. I really have to, you know, if I needed to cry, I would duck out into outside of the birthday party or whatever and just have a little tiny cry. But I wasn't crying all the time anymore. Well, you said, can I quote you back to you? Sure. Great. <laughs> you said you wanted to live your life so that you weren't putting this onto your daughter, which is a thing I think mothers in our society do, right? We get pushed aside and then we put all of our expectations onto our daughters. And you said that you needed to grow the F up before she does. 
uh-huh. <laughs> In my sophisticated way of, of speaking, I said I had to grow the F up before she does. Exactly. I mean, she was a kindergartner and I was not doing anyone any favors by moping around. So one of the things that happened was I found out that because there had been such a demand for Jungian um, seminars, like uh, in a past podcast, I had said I wanted really badly to go to the Carl Jung Institute in Kusnacht, um, Switzerland. And that just wasn't. Yeah, that was actually one of the how you knew your marriage was kind of over is that's a promise that was broken even that was one of the reasons yeah and mm-hmm. and and it was it was hard because you know that was a real possibility and and now it really wasn't at all right and there's other young centers but they're all in huge cities like Houston New York obviously San Francisco there was nothing in the center of the country at all and so but i found out that they who's they it's called IRSJA interregional jungian Society of America, I think, association, maybe, I can't remember if it's Association of America, but it's IRSJA. (laughs) Well, so the Jungians decided to open up a school, a seminar, basically, for Jungian psychoanalysis. Maybe I found out through Jim, my therapist, um, because he was a, a PhD from the Carl Jung Institute. It was a program that you had to get into, and because it was the only one in the entire Midwest, there were people from Nebraska and Iowa. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Where was it? Where was it going to be? Ah, uh, it was going to be held in at McAllister College, which is where, right in St. Paul, Minnesota, which is twenty minutes away from me, but it's super easy to get to. I was right in your backyard. Yeah, and I could take Minnehaha Parkway just all the way through. It was a beautiful drive. The weekends, it was lovely. And through the week, I could do all of the homework. And So uh, you became a student of Jungian psychoanalysis. Yeah, Jungian analytical psychology. And it was marvelous. I met the most wonderful, intelligent people who all are like eyes on the Myers-Briggs type inventory, which means introverted. And most of them were intuitive introverts. So it's like, and if you know anything about that, there's only 1% of the entire population of the world that is that. And we were all in this classroom together. (laughs) So it was wonderful. (laughs) It was like, I just felt at home. One of my classmates was the president of the Minnesota Young Society. And he wanted me to be one of the secretaries. Like we were opening up a building um, with a library that anyone could come in or people could study there. Just a second. I want to just stop you for a second because I'm thinking as people are listening to it, some people know what Jung is and some people don't. So, so just in a nutshell, what is Jung? What is his, what is his perspective? What does he bring to the world and why did it mean so much to you? Okay. So Carl Jung was um, the star student along with Alfred Adler of, um, Freud. Mm -hmm. And Carl Jung did not think that everything came down to sex like Freud did. So he, his, his big contributions to psychology are, you know, introversion and extroversion, analyzing dreams, the shadow, the concept of the shadow and just all of these archetypes and numinous things. So the theory of the unconscious is huge for him. 
And I don't know how anyone comes to Carl Jung except for maybe through Man and His Symbols, which is kind of his introductory book where he introduces anima and animus and the shadow and all of these. So I highly recommend Man and His Symbols. I, I gained nothing from it. It's just an excellent read. Um, you can get it anywhere where books are sold. <laughs> okay, so when, you, when you're telling about this and shadow and, and all these things, seems like an excellent subject matter to be studying as you are reconfiguring your life. Well, exactly. And I think it's kind of a stereotype that people who go into psychology are usually trying to figure something out about themselves or their family members or their loved ones in general. For me, yeah, it was because I had this little six-year-old daughter. I was trying to, I was going back to, you know, my own childhood and combing through all of the patterns. At the time, my little daughter would say, patterns she she would say patterns it's so cute so I, I still think of it I still think of patterns um but I was looking for patterns and um not only there's a personal unconscious but there's also the universal unconscious so pretty much everyone shares you know just like we share what is it 98 percent of our DNA with chimpanzees Carl Jung posited that we share a great deal of our unconscious material with the rest of humanity. I think we talked about that. Yeah. Yeah. So I started keeping track of my dreams really closely. And I had a series mm -hmm. that would have, that was just Jungian par excellence. The very first, um, first time I'd ever come across a Jungian analyst, she told me to go home and dream. And I, and I, I thought I was like, I don't dream on command, but sure enough, I did. And I, it was the only time I ever had a just a total Jungian symbol. It was circling the square, squaring the circle, and it was a disembodied voice who said it. And I told her that, and she made room for me because she didn't have any openings for analysis at the time. So that's how it started. So I was at least aware of what I was looking for. And Jung was a big believer in making your unconscious contents conscious. So however you could do that through writing about it, drawing, painting, music, whatever you needed to do to, to, to bring it into, like if you, let's say you dreamt about a teddy bear, and then if you actually got yourself a teddy bear, that was the, like the one that looked like in the dream, it, it was kind of fun. It's like a, um, what's that little, the kid's game where you go from house to house with a- Oh, like a little scavenger hunt. Yeah, exactly. It's like a personal scavenger hunt. So, you know, you're looking for that exact, what is it? What does it look like in my dream? And it, I started sketching and drawing and painting and writing things down. And the first one that really blew my mind was I dreamt of an, all I could remember was alligator fish. It looked like a little alligator fish. And I was like, but that, there's no alligator fish, you know? So I looked it up. Sure enough, alligator fish is called a gar fish and it's found in the Rio Grande River. And it's a remnant from the archaic past, but here it was in my dream, and I did not. There is absolutely no way I, I knew about that. So that freaked me out. Well, and what's I think really cool about this whole idea, we, we've been into it, but now you're actually like delving in to practice it, right? All this stuff is under the surface anyway. If we don't deal with it, it's there. So bringing it to the surface, making it aware yeah. so you can deal with it, so you can process it, so you can move on to other things. Well, here's an example of what happens if you don't deal with it. If you don't bring those contents up from your unconscious, they come out sideways and backwards and in horrible ways. Like people's shadows, uh, a shadow is what you cast out into the world. All of the negative 
ideas you have about yourself, about the world, all the really ugly things that you don't want to see are shoved down deep into your shadow and that gets projected onto other people and thus begins war and greed and, you know, all the seven deadly sins, of course. <laughs> so. <laughs> so you were going to tell us how you got in and like, it was not a sure thing that you could just get into this program. Is that right? No, not at all. You had to write a, a long essay and go for an interview with a, what you would stereotypically think of as someone who would work with Carl Jung. She looked like she was a head of Ravenclaw or something from, from Harry Potter. I mean, she just did. And um, <laughs> I was so nervous and so excited. And, you know, when I went in there, though, everything came out perfectly, unlike in a microphone for the podcast. But I mean, for some reason, everything came out in perfect sentences. And it was it was just like meant to be. So I got in. And soon we're, you know, running things, holding salons. Yep, I was running salons every uh, every month on Friday, and I would invite guest speakers to talk about Jungian subjects. It augmented our more formal classwork. It's it's almost hard to believe that I did that now. I brought wine and cheese. I, I found the place. It was a St. Stephen's Church, which is really beautiful. It's on Minnehaha Creek. Well, okay, so it sounds like this is the foundations that could carry you to the ends of your life, to retirement, that could just carry you on for years and, and give you great purpose. There's so much there you could unpack it forever. Well, and and after living in the condo, kind of set three years is what I really wanted to be there for, to sort of that in-between period really focus on, I, I was living not too far from my sister, and that way my daughter could go to school with my sister's kids. So, and she was in the same classroom as my niece. So that was great. I mean, it was one of the best decisions I ever made. She felt stable. She was surrounded by family, you know, during that awkward time when everyone is getting used to living a different way. But I didn't want to be in a condo in that particular place for more than three years. And so I kind of had it set in my head. I was looking for a place that I could practice Jungian psychoanalysis. So the house that I eventually found, it has, in fact, the room I'm sitting in right now, it's separate from the house. So there's an entranceway. And I bought this house because people could enter from, from over here, two chairs right here. I wanted to be exactly like my analyst, who's Maria Claussen. She was one of my heroes. So I wanted to be just like her. <laughs> it's a beautiful room. I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> You actually did set up your life to do this forever, permanently. Yep. Yep, I did. And I, that would have made me very happy. And the only reason I didn't do it is because something else made me equally happy. And I had to choose because that's how life goes on the other side of the looking glass. <laughs> when, when bad things happen, you get multiples. When good things happen, you get multiples. And you have to make choices that are in line in keeping with who you are at the time. So yeah, what came up? I think I said in a past episode that I had visited the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Mm -hmm. My wonderful friend, Dave Sorovchek, who is still one of my best friends. And I just saw him the other day for breakfast. And I go out to Colorado Springs as often as possible. And he comes to Minnesota to see people too, pretty often. So anyway, my whole family got shown the Olympic Training Center. And during that time, we realized that there was a there was a tournament. It was the first tournament of the the season of the year, 
and it was uh, the first international tournament of the year, big kickoff to the year. It was called um, Kit Carson Cup, and it was funded through the military, and the military was losing funding, so the cup was going to go away, and I just was very curious because I'd found out that it it takes maybe $4,000 to an Olympic athlete to stay in the dorms. Can you imagine being a part of someone's Olympic dream? Like, it's, it's not that hard. I mean... Well, and especially because for you, Olympics have been big on your radar forever. Always. I don't think I've missed a single Olympics winter or summer, especially love the summer Olympics. I asked how much it costs, just a ballpark figure for a a tournament like that. And it was a number that was not anything like I thought. So I had this uh, foundation that Maddie and I were going to run and... She felt very strongly about nutrition and education, and I felt strongly about you know making human beings into their highest selves and helping people to reach their their promise. You know, who better to embody what our mission statement was than an Olympian? And right, right? and and I thought, wow. I mean, if I could be part of any just one Olympian's life, and I did, I did be, do that. But to take over a tournament, I brought it up to the coaches and they were like, really? That would be amazing. You know, that would be lovely. Well, and I was like, well, what do I have to do? And they were like, you just have to work with us a little bit and, and come out to visit and, and during the tournament be here and, and you'll probably be interviewed, but don't worry about it and you'll be fine. And, and I was just like, okay, just I'll, I'll, I'll do this, but with one caveat, and that is to not name it after me. Because I don't like that. I don't. <laughs> I don't like things named after me. I didn't. Maddie and I did not name our our foundation after ourselves. And uh, but we couldn't find a name. We couldn't find a name. So in the absence of a name, the guys started calling it the Kiki Cup because it was so fun to say Kiki Cup. Right. <laughs> so, Who doesn't love that? <laughs> find another name. Well, whatever. It's the Kiki Cup. So it becomes the Kiki Cup temporarily, at least for a couple of years. And every time I went to one of those tournaments, I brought some of my girlfriends with me, like Vicky and, you know, people that I still travel with to this day, um, took my family and, you know, it was just fun. It was fun. Mm -hmm. I, I, I hadn't experienced that much pure joy, just seeing the athletes in their prime who were just happy to be there doing their thing. It was amazing. And I started learning the rules to Greco-Roman wrestling and getting really interested in that team because uh, of where they had traveled, like Iran. They they traveled regularly to Iran and Russia. And I just thought, wow, that's diplomacy right there. That's sports diplomacy. At this point, you could still have sponsored the Kiki Cup and continued on your path of Jungian psychoanalysis, except what happened? <laughs> oh, Coach Frazier. He's so he's so funny. Um, okay, so Stephen Frazier, it's F-R-A-S-E-R for anyone who wants to look him up. He was the very first American to win gold in Greco-Roman wrestling. So he is a big deal and also the nicest person you'll ever meet. So nice and has a great sense of humor. We got to be friends and he would invite me to do crazy things like, um, hey, do you want to go on, go on a nine-hour motorcycle ride? I don't think he said it was nine hours, but it was. <laughs> <They're back. laughs> I was like, oh my 
gosh. But, you know, and I had... Um, and you, you said these were Harleys, too. These were not just... Mo these like Harley riders. Oh, they weren't just any. They were tricked out Harleys. Exactly. And I'm not exactly a biker girl or anything. I'm more like a librarian. <laughs> <laughs> so, so imagine me on the back of Harley. It was pretty funny. Um, but I brought girlfriends, too. And I Susan went, Vicky, Angie... So um, that was one of the things that we did with him. And then he said, well, you know, you could come to Cuba with us, with the team. And I went, how many chances do you get to go to Cuba? Like at the time, well, it still isn't open, but at the time it was still really pretty rare for people to go because it was illegal for Americans to go there unless you were going through the State Department. And so I was part of the, the consortium of the team. And while I was there, I stepped in some dog poo in the, um, <laughs> the street. <laughs> no, it wasn't even in the street. It was in the gym that where we were having. It was just open. And like, so there were like creatures running in and out. Anyway, he, I think he wanted to see how I would do with something like that. And I just laughed and, you know, I had a flip flop on or something and I went and washed it off and came back in. No big deal. And I think those things like, okay. She has stamina. You're not really, you're not really a princess. You can handle. Yeah, not at all. I <laughs> raised in northern Minnesota to fish and around hunters and everything. So no, no, that right. The the rooms in the condo, notwithstanding. Yeah, I mean that was something that I wanted to. Uh, uh, the queen and princess part of me wanted to be expressed in the outer outer uh -huh. world, but dog poo is there as well. <laughs> Anyway, so um, Vicky and I took our kids because she was going through a divorce. This was like maybe a year after my divorce. Mm -hmm. So we decided that, you know, we as single moms were going to take our kids on a vacation to the Grand Canyon. Mm -hmm. And we went to stay in a hotel that had an amazing pool, you know, for the kids. Right. In Mesa. And Vicky and I had big sun hats on and we're drinking um probably margaritas. I don't know. And all of a sudden I get a phone call from coach Frazier saying, would you like to be my team leader? And I was like, Oh, what's a team leader? What? <laughs> Which is what everyone has asked me for, <laughs> you know, multiple times every moment of my life. Now a team leader, he was like, well, you know, it's, it's, it's like a team manager. Um, you know, you would sponsor my the team and go with us everywhere and you'd be responsible for start sheets and figuring out um who's on deck and who is in the hole and blah 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 blah. and he just you know went over a little couple little things he's like it's logistics you know it's like being a it's like being a team mom i think we would he said we've never had a woman team leader and i just think in in greco-roman wrestling and he was like i just think the guys already love you and we know that you're you know, easy to travel with. So, you know, would you, would you be my team leader? And I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm sitting by the pool with him. <laughs> I went, everyone, I was like, Vicky, this is really important. Cause well, and I was like, well, what do I have to do? And he was just like, I need a headshot and a, a bio right now, basically. And I was like, can I have 45 minutes, please? <laughs> he was like, sure. <laughs> so I was like, okay all right, I'll be right back to you, you know? And then I was like, Vicky, you have to watch the kids. I, I went over to the little seating area and, um, you know, had my towel on and stuff and, and, and got 
some scratch paper from my bag, my mom bag and like a pen. And I was just trying to like, okay, what have I done? What have I done? What is, what is my resume? Blah, 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 blah. So what's my bio? I started writing it <laughs> and I found a picture that I'd taken with my friend Aaron Hooley at the Oregon State Fair, one of the fun trips that I'd been on. Cause you know, I decided I hadn't seen enough of my friends in the years I was married and I needed to do that more. So I went out of my way to go and visit people. So I had this great picture um, and I wrote the bio and I sent it to him within 40 minutes and uh, that was it. And he, and I was like, do you really think I can do this? And he said, well, I wouldn't have asked you otherwise. And I was like, well, if you think I can do it, then I do too. So thus began travels with the Greco-Roman team. And sometimes we, it was over the weekends that I had the Jungian seminar. Ah. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it worked out where I'd be like, coming right from the airport with my rolly bag into the classroom, right. <laughs> you know, I'd be in Budapest reading my Jungian literature. <laughs> right. <laughs> just two really weird, weird worlds colliding. It's just uh-huh. so unusual. And I, boy, at the time too, I had a really tough time explaining what it is that I do. You know, I'm 40 years old and going on these dates and they're like, what do you do? And I'm like, Oh, I, studying Carl Jung and um, traveling with a wrestling team. (laughs) Anyway. Something had to give. (sighs) Yeah, something gave. And you chose USA Wrestling. Absolutely, I chose USA Wrestling, and I still have to this day, and I think I will always be, um, you know, I may not always be a team leader. I am a team leader now for the women's team, but I haven't really started yet. Um, starting shortly, but I will always be friends and family of the USA wrestling teams. So that's a lifelong passion that I had no idea that would, no idea that that would become a lifelong passion. And thus you've planted the seeds for the entire rest of this season. Oh, interesting. you for listening to this episode of Tales from a Bucket List Champ. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast and share it with friends. Our sound editor is the talented Will Quee. Our story editor and producer is me, Amy Hallberg, and our writer and executive producer is Kiki Kelly. We'll be back next time with episode two, Kiki, the team leader. Until then, what's one item on your bucket list?